Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. This is one of those passages that I suspect most of us would probably not remember that well from the Gospels, or perhaps not even remember that's up there at all, Uh, and appropriate and good for us to therefore pay careful attention to the Word of the Lord. It was written a long time ago, but because the Holy Spirit is the primary author of Scripture, when he wrote this, he had them in mind, but he also had us in mind. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has planted will be rooted up. Sorry, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted. Let's get that sentence correct. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray. Father, we ask, O God, that you would give life and light that we would understand and believe for Christ's sake. Amen. 
Many of you in the room are old enough, sadly not everyone, but many in the room are old enough to remember uh, the 2006 documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Uh, You remember that, that was Al Gore's big documentary on global warming. Uh, It was largely comprised of a slideshow that he had done a thousand times around the world. It made something like $50 million. Um, More interestingly than the content of that documentary, I think the title is perfect. I mean, I, I can't really think of very many movies or documentaries or really anything that captures a concept so brilliantly so elegantly, so succinctly, as an inconvenient truth. Now, certainly some would say that what he was talking about wasn't the truth or perhaps not even that inconvenient. But I love that idea of a concept of a reality, a truth, a a thing that is an unchanging portion of God's world or God's character, That is wonderfully inconvenient for me. I mean, this is important as I live in the land of convenience. I mean, we can do everything now. And that's actually, interestingly, one of the things COVID has taught us. That you can buy everything online. There's somebody to bring you absolutely anything these days. The ultimate ultimate inconvenience. And honestly, I think many of us, we love those passages of Scripture that are convenient and easy. They tell me how special I am. They tell me how special I will be. They tell me how God cares for me, or they tell me the things that I want to hear because they're happy news. But unfortunately, perhaps for my flesh, one of the great realities of Scripture is that it is frequently an inconvenient truth for the lingering corruption of the flesh. You see, the Lord has designed His Word to not just tell us the good news of how Jesus forgive, forgives sins, how Jesus has stepped inside time and space, perished on a cross, remained under the power of death for a time, and, and raised from death itself, that I too might have life, that you might have life. That is a glorious truth. A reality that's freely offered to the people of God. All you have to do is ask, and He gives generously. But, our Lord, as part of that salvation, does not then affirm us in every action that we take. He doesn't say, oh, you're redeemed. Therefore, everything you do is redeemed. Everything you do is good. Not like a a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent that turns a blind eye to the wickedness of the child. Oh, they're just so cute. Everything's adorable. It's not really that adorable when they're 30. Might want to fix it now. This chapter, I think, certainly the first half of it here, is one of those chapters that that really, I think, confronts us at the core of the things I don't want to hear about. 
It, it deals with an aspect of the sinful condition that I might suggest is really in the DNA of the United States of America, of postmodern people, of South Carolina particularly, and um, the time in which we live. And you read it and you think, well, I, I'm, maybe I don't understand exactly what you're talking about, Michael. And there's a little bit of a, a work that has to be done here. I would encourage you. This is a sermon that's probably going to take a little bit of emotional energy for you. To engage God's Word. To intentionally listen. Because you're not going to want to. It starts with a question that on the surface uh, seems really common sense to us, namely because we have different cultural background and a slightly different view of hygiene. Pharisees and the scribes ask Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition and they don't wash their hands when they eat? Some of us are immediately like, ew, gross. No, this is not a germs conversation. Uh, This is not a germs conversation at all. In fact, actually, uh, this question is a loaded Jewish tradition question. In the Jewish culture, they had a number of kind of different things, the truths that they wrestled with. One, they understood the Old Testament. They understood God's laws to be true and right and real. They also, however, had said that when Moses went up to Sinai, tradition said, that he received oral truth as well. Not just written truth, but oral, oral as well. That he had truth that had been passed on through the generations of this kind of spoken reality that had not been recorded in God's Word, but was equally true and equally binding. Now, the problem was, is these two realities didn't always line up. God's written Word and the telephone game of what they said his spoken word was, sometimes didn't match. So they had a whole third thing, which was interpretations to try to figure out how to get these two things to agree and then how to live. This interpretive process, this middle ground of trying to reconcile these two great realities had become, uh, we might even say, a point of national identity for the Jews. Which rabbi you followed, which one told you what was true and right and good and lovely? Which one told you what God's law was? And so the interesting thing was your average Jew in this era probably was committed more to that philosophical interpretive process than they were committed to the Word of God. And we see that in their question. They're asking specifically about why the disciples didn't wash their hands. And again, not talking about germs, but talking about ritual. The Jews, in an effort to protect God's law, an effort to kind of keep a fence around it so that we didn't get close to sinning in any way, had made all sorts of kind of over-the-top crazy rules that had to be followed on top of the law to make sure nobody violated it. One of them, in an effort to make sure that there was no impurity amongst the people of God, was they would have a ritual baptism of the hands, a washing of the hands. This wasn't like soap and water scrubbing, you know, like a surgeon or, you know, with our hand sanitizer before you go back to the store or whatever. This was more of a ceremonial thing to showcase that you had been made pure and clean. 
Problem was, it's not commanded anywhere in the Bible. It's not. It's not commanded by God at all. What this had arisen from was, remember how we have God's written word, and then you had that human tradition, and then some sort of kind of merging and meshing interpretation of the two. That's where this had come out of. And it's interesting, even the Pharisees asking it identify this with the words they use. Why do your disciples break the tradition? This is a tradition. This is a a cultural thing that we've come to assign meaning to. Why do your disciples do it that way? Now, when we think about it today, there's not a, a real super easy kind of direct analog for how this works in our current culture. I mean, we have lots of ones that sound very similar, but aren't exactly right. Why do, you, why do you Christians not follow the science? As if the science was a thing. Why do you Christians not know better? Why do you Christians so intolerant? Those kind of get at it, but they certainly don't really get the core of it. And I suspect, really, the heart of what the Pharisees and scribes are asking is this. Why won't Jesus do it my way? Why won't Jesus do it my way? I want Jesus to do everything that he's doing. I want him to say the way the world has to be is the way that I do it. I want to be affirmed in everything that I am and in everything that I do. Why won't Jesus do it my way? I mean, that's effectively what's happening here. The Pharisees are the ones that are in charge of this tradition. They are the ones that are in charge of enforcing this tradition. The scribes would have helped uh, maintain the, the record of it. And they're asking, look, why do your guys, why do your students, your disciples, why do they break our rules? Why aren't they doing it my way? And when we begin to think about that question actually from that perspective, maybe not quite so much nestled within the cultural context, but the question of why won't Jesus do it my way, well, that honestly begins to offend our sensibilities. I mean, if we're going to be honest. Because the reality is... All of us as created creatures, all of us with the lingering corruption of sin, all of us fall short of God's perfect law and the way that Jesus wants to do it. Whatever it is, the life, the world, the perfect law, the plan that he has, all of us have our own little way. In fact, actually, uh, really, if you're going to track the history of uh, thought and philosophy in this great country of ours that we live in, uh, this has been the the philosophical underpinnings of the last, we'd say, maybe 60 years of this country. More than that, but specifically 60. A nation that has been saying, no, I have to do things my way. 
Right? We have Sinatra ringing in our ears. A deep-seated commitment to morality, to wisdom, to ethics, to the good, the right, the beautiful, the true, as determined by my perception. It has to be done my way. The session of this church, we read books together um, pretty much kind of all of the time. We're trying to always do some sort of book study and uh, promote some conversation with us. Sometimes I pick really good books. Sometimes I pick really bad books. Uh, and I get to hear about both of those, uh, believe it or not. Uh, right now we're reading, I think, what is probably the best book published of last year. It's by a, a Presbyterian scholar, church history, a church historian named Carl Truman. And the, the title of the book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And Truman's goal is to not kind of describe the situation, but to say philosophically, what happened where a boy can say he's a girl and everyone believes him? Now, he's he's not talking medically. He's not even talking like psychologically of what's happening in the young man. He's talking culturally philosophically, what, what, what has happened in America where we have these moments where people will say this and the whole culture rallies and says, you know what, they're right. Some of you, you, you don't maybe quite read as widely as, as others. You, you have missed the last year the movement to show that two plus two is five. I'm not making this up. This is a legitimate argument in American culture right now is to argue that two plus two equals five. And how have we gotten to a point where a culture can look at that and say, this is okay. This is good, this is right, this is beautiful, and this is true. And and interestingly, Truman's argument is, at its core, is this. When we've begun to define truth by my feelings, reality only exists inside. Now, he, he hasn't, we're not quite far enough in for him to kind of get to the implication that we have a nation full of psychopaths. But the point he's making is, is we have a nation that philosophically is committed to saying reality exists within me, not external to me. Therefore, what is your role in reality? Well, it is just to affirm me and my feelings. Your role in my life is just to, to tell me that I'm good and I'm right and I'm beautiful and I'm true and all of those feelings and all those perceptions on the inside, your job is to agree with me in them. And when you don't, guess what happens? Well, I have to cancel you. I can't listen to you. You're anathema to me. Because you've denied that inner reality in my world. You see, what Truman is arguing, interestingly, from the church historian perspective, is the answer to this question. Why won't Jesus do it my way? The implication is our culture is saying, I don't care. I'm going to do it my way anyways. I don't care if there's another way. I don't, I don't care if anybody else has another way. It's my way or no way at all because the only thing that exists is reality inside my head. And honestly, the danger here and the struggle in this passage, I think, is that it's, it's very easy for a church like this to throw stones at the cultural liberals. 
It's very easy for a church like this to say, hey, you know what? Look at those bad people who endorse little boys trying to become little girls. Don't they know that his DNA is written in his cell walls? And even if they change the plumbing, they cannot change the DNA. Don't they know that? The interesting thing in this passage is that it's not the liberals, it's the conservatives. The Pharisees and the scribes represented here are not the political and social liberals that are coming in and saying, hey, let us be these hellions that that are reprobate and living in all sorts of immorality. Let's do all of the depraved things that you can possibly think of. Let's think of the worst things that humans can do and let's do all those things. Interestingly, the passage here that we're dealing with, it's with the conservatives, those religious and political conservatives that are saying the problem with Jesus is that he will not do it my conservative way. They've drawn boundary lines more rigid than Jesus himself has. It's interesting how uh, I think in our, our lives today, many of us, if, if we were going to answer the question, what's the opposite of true Christianity? If we're going to answer the question of what, what's the opposite of, of biblical, uh, true, robust religion I mean, it would be a fun conversation. We could come up with all sorts of things. I imagine I'd hear lots of names of just the political and you know, social landscape. Interestingly, if you go back to the Reformation and you look at Calvin and you look at so many of the Reformers, their answer to that was it was human, super, human superstition. The opposite of Christianity is not worshiping the devil. The opposite of Christianity is not Islam. The opposite of Christianity is not Hinduism or Sikhism or Buddhism or any of those sorts of things. The opposite of Christianity is listening to the self. That was Calvin's point. The opposite of Christianity is at its core a person who elevates their own voice to the place of God and says, I will listen to me instead of to the word of God. That is the opposite of Christianity. Suddenly, a question like this becomes really appropriate, actually, when we begin to think about it. I mean, if nothing else, we got to watch this, have we not? Two weeks from tomorrow is when COVID-19 first hit this body in having to impact our schedule and our activities. Fifty weeks of trying to navigate an exceedingly complicated social, scientific, and spiritual landscape. And the thing that has surprised me the most was how comfortable we have become listening to the self.
how comfortable we've become. Listening to the voice in our head. Letting it affirm us. Letting it tell us that we are the good and the right and the beautiful and those that disagree, well, they are the ugly and the rejected. Letting it tell us and affirm us that we are the wise and they are the fools. Letting it tell us if they only understood my view correctly, well, then they'd get it and they wouldn't be so stupid. We have listened to the self. Well, Jesus, I think, explains here two reasons why that's a big deal. If we're going to look at the question, why won't Jesus do it my way? Uh, Well, kind of put bluntly and then with the two illustrations here, the word reflects the person it comes from, right? The, the, the words, the ideas, the, the truth that comes from a person reflects the character of the person that says it. Interestingly, Jesus is going to give two very clear explanations of, or illustrations of why that, that matters. They ask him, in essence, at the core, uh, why won't Jesus do it my way? Why won't you do it my way? And his answer is sharp. It's borderline, well, I mean, the South, they would, we would call it rude. Love to think about the Holy One who cannot sin being what we would call rude. Well, he'd hurt my feelings. He answered them and says, <laughs> they said, why do you break the tradition? He one-ups them and says, why do you break God's law with your traditions? Vocabulary, very important here. Why do you break the commandments of God? Why do you violate the higher standard by maintaining your tradition? And he gives them one very clear illustration. Look, the word of God is clear. Exodus 20 and Exodus 21. You have to honor your mother and your father. You don't get a pass on that. They might be losers. Tough. Lord knows what he's talking about. You honor your parents. In fact, actually... uh, building the latter part there, if you don't honor your parents and intentionally and kind of consistently and culturally rebellious, at that point it was punishable by death. The Jews viewed this commandment as being directly connected to your understanding of God himself. If you can't honor your parents, you can't honor the Lord. But, as any bureaucrat excels at, The more rules you have, the more loopholes you have to craft. Any of you that have to labor in bureaucracy, I'm so sorry, but you understand this point at like a deep, like soul-meaning sort of level, don't you? Anyone tells his father or mother, look, I can't do this. What's happening, verse 5 there is... I can't give you what you need, right? Remember, your children in this era were your retirement, It was one of the kind of really important reasons why having babies was so significant, why barren women, it was such a tragic thing. It wasn't just that you didn't have children, it's that you had no means or mechanism to take care of you when you were old. You would have no place to live, you would have no place to eat, you would have no way of providing income, you would die destitute, so you needed kids. If nothing else, they could take care of you when you were old. 
The illustration he presents here is of a young man, perhaps, who's dealing with his parents, and he says, oh, look, you need money from me. You, you need me to support you. You need me to take care of your housing and to take care of your food and your livelihood. Well, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't. My money is devoted to God. And it's devoted to God by me using it. That's effectively the illustration that he's giving is someone who's saying, I can't take care of my father and my mother because it's given to the Lord. It's devoted to God, but the way that it's devoted to God is by me consuming it myself. So I can't give it to mom and dad because that would be sinning because it's supposed to go to the Lord. But if I consume it, it's okay. It's this massive little loophole that they've worked. Jesus' assessment here is, uh, for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. With your nonsense little loophole, you have violated God's law. You have sinned against the Lord. And what is he showing here is, why is it not acceptable for things to be done my way? Well, because all of us as finite creatures with the lingering corruption of sin, at our best, this side of the grave... At our purest, this side of the grave, at our most noble and our most lovely, this side of the grave, we are at best inconsistent. At our best, we are inconsistent. And there's a very important reason for this. We live within one finite time and place. We have limited information. We're not able to know everything all at once. It would melt our brains. We would die a horrible death if we did that. We're, we're limited in our very nature. And because we're limited, the words that proceed from out of our mouth are limited. Paul even has to make this point at one point, justifying his journeys. Did I say yes and then no and then yes and then no? Absolutely not. I said yes, and then the Lord said no, and that's all I can do, sorry. That's why historically in the church, when they signed letters, at the end you would see DV at the bottom, which was the Lord willing. I I don't know everything, right? I mean, we could really and truly, honestly, just about put that, all our announcements here. 5.30 this evening, we're going to have flocks, Lord willing, Jesus could come back and uh, no flocks. Sorry, you better feast somewhere else. Our way is at bet, best inconsistent. And that's if our, you know, our heart is pure in that regard, much less with the more nefarious reasons that people are inconsistent. You want to see what inconsistency looks like? Look at the way the voice in your head treats you when you sin. Right? When, you, when you're, you're people that you're aggravated with, when they sin against you, the voice in your head is all condemnation. For many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, when the voice in our head sounds off when we sin, it's like, well, I'm not a bad person. I mean, they are, but I'm not a bad person. Shocking how inconsistent we are. Second illustration he gives here in uh, verses uh, 7 through 9. He quotes Isaiah. Again, (laughs) 
the Holy One, we know he never sins. Verse 7, you hypocrites, to their face. Wow. Isaiah did well when he said this. This people honor me with their lips. They say that they love the Lord. They say that they're holy people. They say they're committed to the word of God. They say they follow the commandments. But you know what? Their heart is not in it. And as a result, their worship is vanity. It's vanity. Children, I would just insert a quick comment to you all. This is the danger for you. That you grow up with parents that take you to church every Sunday and praise God that they do. But it never makes it to your heart. That you pick up the habit of going to church. But you never pick up the heart of knowing the God who saves you, who knowing the God who offers salvation in the gospel. Adults, application the same for you. The interesting thing here Jesus is highlighting in verses 7 through 9 in terms of this this illustration of what they're doing wrong and answering their question is, uh, verse 9, in vain they worship me. Why, Why is it in vanity? Why is it a problem? Because they're teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. They're confusing the word of God with the word of man and they're presenting them as the same. They're presenting them as identical. They're presenting them as, as on the same par as indistinguishable from one from the other. This is the other reason why Jesus won't let me do it my way. Because honestly, if we are really and genuinely careful and paying attention to the self, we all consistently in our own minds, blur my own values with God's values. And there are so many of them. I talk about it in time with interns and such of how we dress. There's a reason why I'm wearing what I'm wearing. Is it because you're more holy if you wear a bow tie? Well, maybe. No, of course not. No, of course not. It's because I am fully aware that there is an unwritten law that I can transgress in my clothing and people will think I have sinned. Now, interestingly, will I have done anything wrong? Nope. Could I be preaching up here in gym shorts and a tank top? I would be very uncomfortable. I will not lie. But would I be sinning? No. Would some of you have a really hard time with it? Yes. You see, the reality is many of these commitments are the deep commitments that we refuse to acknowledge. 
Think about the things that you have the most affection for in the church, and almost certainly they go hand in hand. I mean, I haven't even started talking about the music. I still want to be paid next week. (laughs) You see, the reality is what they're offering here and Jesus is correcting is, is they're offering their own wisdom. They're offering their own word. They're offering truth that's in rattling around in their own head, but is not in this book. And friends, we have had over the last year so much said, so much felt, so much argued, so much emoted, so much angered over and wept over and all of the feels over that is not in this book. here's the reality. For those of us that are unwilling to consider the ways in which our own voice is leading us, Jesus presents a description. Those people are like the blind leading the blind. Eventually, they will fall into a pit. The voice in your head lies to you. This is one of those things that I wish parents taught their children very early on. The voice in your head is a liar. This is not. This is the only thing that's not. It's why I I love you all, but when you come to bring ideas and truths and realities, if, if you can't explain it from the book, I listen but it does not carry great weight. Because this is true. This is right. This is good. This is beautiful. This lies. This lies. This is actually the point that Jesus makes to the crowd very quickly. Boy, this had to have been awkward, right? He yells at the scribes and Pharisees, calls them hypocrites to their faces. Then the people who are all standing around, and you know they had been standing around with this facial expression. Like, is this really happening? This is like dinner in a movie. I get a show for free. Jesus then turns to the crowd and says, hey, all of you, all of you bozos watching, listen up. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. The heart is the problem. It's the sin inside the soul of a person. It's why you don't trust the voice in your head. It's why you don't trust your emotions. It's why you don't trust your own thoughts. You don't trust your own logic. There's nothing about the self that is trustworthy. I love it. Verse 12, the disciples. "Um, Jesus, you know you hurt their feelings, right? Like, you know you really upset them. They're really mad. 
Let him. That's actually, let him alone. Let him be angry. Who cares? They're wrong. The voice in their head is telling them lies. The fact that they're even angry shows they're listening to the wrong thing. Instead, the Father will tend to His own people. Those that are not planted in the Word of God, He will root up. You don't have to worry about that. God will tend to His own. The blind will lead the blind. They will pass into a pit. Welcome to 2021. Blind leading blind, emotional destruction all around us, social devastation, sin running rampant. The blind have led the blind, and we have fallen into a pit. Verse 15, I love Peter's moxie. Ambition here, he's (laughs) he's really quite special. Uh, Jesus, can you explain this to me? I still don't understand. I don't get it. I'm a little slow. I'm sorry. Jesus gets here a, a bit more direct than the ESV translates. Do you not see things that go into the mouth, then go into the stomach, then go into the toilet? He uses the word latrine. Don't you get it? Defilement is not about eating and potty talk. Defilement is about the sins of the heart. The illicit desires, the evil, the the pride of self, the things that reside in the deep parts of our soul that we really would be embarrassed if everybody knows. This issue is sin of the soul. Verse 19, for it's out of the heart that comes evil thoughts. It's out of the heart that comes murder, and out of the heart that comes adultery, and sexual immorality, and theft, and false witness, and slander, and disobeying parents, as mentioned earlier. It's out of the heart that all of this evil comes. Defilement is not eating without baptizing your hands. Defilement is being a child of Adam. Being a child that listens to your own voice in your own head, that nurtures sin in your heart. And I would end with this. Friends, this is why it is so incredibly important that the one who is speaking is understood to be the Word of God incarnate. That Jesus is the Word of God incarnate because we have so many voices in the world around us. And the reality is they're all liars. Save one. The Word in human form. Trustworthy beyond all trustworthiness. True beyond all truth. You realize the the idea of truth is just a reflection of who He is. I mean, if you wanted to be kind of snarky about it, you could say He's more true than truth could be. It's why it is so important that we be so radically committed to knowing the Word, 
and believing the word and being honest about what's not the word. And that last one's the doozy. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was prepping for kind of the conclusion and thinking through, okay, now, emotionally, kind of where do I want us to be at? And I was processing, and I thought, you know, honestly, there are probably some of us in the room that think, wow, man, he really preached a burner for those people sitting next to me. If you think that, I'm talking to you. If you think that, you're the reason that my 2020 was hard. It's you. You need to hear God's word. You're listening to your own head, and it's killing you. If you know you're the man, or the woman, or the child, praise God. Let's repent. Together, let's repent and let's endeavor from this day forward to be a people of the book that's honest about what's not in the book, that's honest that's what is in the book, and being clear and believing and obeying those things. May it be that Christ would speak and we would listen. Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it hurts our feelings. And I know it's hurt mine. We thank you for Jesus who forgives sins. We know we need it. Oh Lord, would you make us different? And we thank you that we have the Holy Spirit. What a marvelous reality that he uh, has made his residence in us. What a terrible job. Would he be powerful to work even now? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.